I can get my bulletin turned around, and you can all follow me with the uh, scripture reading, which is found in John 20, 29 to 31. And I know you can find it really quick, so I'll start reading. Jesus saith unto him, Thomas, because thou hast seen me, thou hast believed. Blessed are they that have not seen, and yet have believed. And many other signs truly did Jesus in the presence of his disciples, which are not written in this book. But these are written, that ye might believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing ye might have life through his name. Okay. Hey, look at that. Um, this year, I'm preaching a sermon. One sermon all year long. It's kind of broken up into many, many parts. It's on the Gospel of John. I want you to join me in enjoying the Gospel of John this year in a deep, intimate way as we try to understand what he is all about. Now, I'm going to tell you why I'm doing this. My goal is for 2013, spend more quality time in each church. I talked about that. It means here more often. I haven't been here that often. Spend more quality time with my family. Ugh. That's harder and harder to find time to do that. Yes, but I want to do that and carefully manage and control my calendar. That's the secret to the other two happening. <laughs> so those are my own personal goals. And then for the church, support the child, youth, uh, children's youth ministry program. And that's going to be something that's going to be exciting. I hope all of you will be praying about that. Keep our church finances in order. They are, we got them now in a good place. We're going to try to keep them there. So we'll see the church finances hopefully grow and get stronger and the church gets stronger as a result and able to do things because of that. Launch long-term evangelism plans. Now the long-term means, you know, something that lasts over year to year, a program that goes on and on. So those are the things that I'm thinking about. Prepare for the centennial. Did I spell that right? Yes. Yeah, didn't get a SOS from the spell check on that one. Study the Gospel of John all year long. So those are the things, and so let's take a look. The Gospel of John. By the way, this picture that I just put on the screen here is a picture that they recently discovered, they think, is a drawing. Who knows if it had any resemblance to John or not, but it was an old, old, old picture. It goes way, 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 way back to early Christianity. They just recently discovered that. And here is John's resting place in Ephesus. You can go there today and you can find that. And here is a typical church picture of, of John. And the thing that's noticeable about John, what do you find right over his head? Are you able to make that out, that black thing? An eagle. Okay, and, and here's the reason why. The uniqueness of each gospel. The gospels are depicted in Ezekiel, well, not gospels, but there are two depictions in Ezekiel and Revelation that talk about, Revelation talks about these elders around the throne, and one of them is a lion, and ox, looks like an ox, looks like a man, looks like an eagle. And Ezekiel does the same thing. And it was the early church custom that they assigned these to the four gospel pictures as well. And they thought that Matthew tells the story of the Messiah and Judah, the lion of the tribe of 
Judah. Mark is, is written to uh, the, the plainest of them all and uh, the most human interested in them all. And they think that Mark was the pen, penman for Peter. And so it represents, you know, the, the, the Peter and who he was. And that's what they think that's all about. And Luke, of course, was written by a, um, uh, a physician who uh, came upon the scene later, was very interested in mankind and human and service and sacrifice, and John the eagle. And the issue about an eagle is the eagle has this ability to soar very, very high, as John does. And I'm telling you these things because I want you to understand about John. To soar very, very high and look right into the sun and not let the sun can't destroy it. It hurt its sight. Has this ability to see for long, long distances. And that, to the early church, became a symbol of what John was all about in his theology in the book of John. Very different. You know, you have the synoptics, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, the ones that pretty much tell the same story. A little bit differently. Almost everything is the same, though. And then you find John that just takes a total different route. So we're going to be looking at that and trying to identify that this year. Here's another document that where you can see the same thing. Uh, Matthew presents the Messiah, Mark the servant, Luke the son of God, son of man, and, and John the son of God. And you can see all of those things here. As far as the ensigns, the chart on your right over here, you can see that the banners, uh, the brigade banners uh, that guided the children of Israel in their wilderness wandering were to the east, Judah, a lion, uh, to the south, Reuben, a man, and uh, to the west, Ephraim, uh, ox, and to the north, Dan, Brigid uh, was an eagle. Not the individual ones of the tribe, but of the four different directions of the compass. And so this was a very common thing that has held a lot of history. And the one I, what I want to bring to your attention is that John is represented consistently uh, throughout history as, as the eagle. John sees a different Jesus than the other gospel writers. At least he writes about it differently. And Jesus behaves differently in the book of John. He is not the lowly Jesus, meek and mild, that the synoptics. Instead, he is assertive. Very assertive. Hey, have your Bibles open? Let's go to uh, John chapter 2. And I have some, my glasses somewhere. Where did I leave those things? They're down there. I found out I need them regularly. Okay. John chapter 2, verse 4. Someone have it? I'm already got my glasses on. Jesus said unto her, Woman, what have I to do with thee? Mine hour is not yet come. That sounds like a little bit assertive, right? In your face a little bit? So John presents a picture, like instead of the meek and mild, a little bit more strong language. In chapter 4, verses 17 and 18, what does it say there? Chapter 4, 17 and 18. Yeah, not so tactful. <laughs> you know, Jesus was, by John, he saw Jesus as going right to the issue, oftentimes very assertive. He also presents, this is different than you read in the others, he also presents him as being combative. And let's look at uh, John eight forty four. 
Those of you that have your Bibles open, take a look at that. There's some other verses listed as well. And by the way, if you want, we've been saying this over and over, if you want a copy of this PowerPoint, you have to have software that can run PowerPoint, but it is posted on our website, or will be soon. Uh, 8.44. Uh, you are of your father the devil, and the desires of your father you want to do. He was a murderer from the beginning, does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. When he speaks a lie, he speaks from his own resources. He is a liar and the father of it. Who's saying those words? He's talking to whom? The religious leaders. Was that tactful? <laughs> so Jesus can be that way. And John doesn't hesitate to present him that way. He's more engaged in the rough and tumble of debate. Again, still in the chapter 8, 31 through 47, this whole issue gets almost explosive and out of control in the Gospel of John. As you read these verses, 31 to 47, you can't help but feel the intensity. They're almost fistic, fist to fist, you know, fisticuffs uh, to the parties because Jesus comes right at them, nose to nose, toe to toe, talking to them. He's very much engaged. He can even be a bit sarcastic at times. Go over to John chapter 10, just maybe to turn over the page, and verse 32, you will find, Jesus answered them saying, many good works I have shown you from my Father. For which of those works do you stone me? (laughs) So you find in the Gospel of John that he is not embarrassed to present a confrontive Jesus to the people, which is quite interesting. Have you found that not always in your life can you be sweet and kind and mild in every way and proper? Well, if you find yourself with those tones that you just read from the Gospel of John coming out of the mouth of Jesus himself, John records them that way, you're in good company. Jesus was that way. And it's kind of nice to know that once in a while, it's okay to speak that way, Jesus did. And so that's what he presents. Is this good news from a son of thunder? It's good news to those of us that have a need to be able to speak directly and be assertive, maybe a little combative, engaged and sarcastic. How Jesus interacts with people. Now, this is different in John as well. In the other synoptic Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, you find a whole bunch of short, little compacted uh, stories. But in the Gospel of John, you don't see that so much. What you see is long stories where he spends a lot of the time developing and showing us the characters of the people involved, sometimes taking a whole chapter in length. You remember the story of Nicodemus, the time he took with Nicodemus. And it's all written out for us to get the the back and forth of that conversation between Jesus and Nicodemus. When we're done, we have an idea what really happened as Jesus labored for the soul of Nicodemus. And that's what, you see, John was interested in presenting those kind of stories to us in the detail. The Samaritan woman, you remember? He spent a lot of time with her and went over a lot of topics. And you can get the feel of what's going on inside that Samaritan woman. It's not just a passing quick glance. He really spends time with him, developing the character and telling the story. Do you remember the paralytic at at Bethesda, the pool of Bethesda? A lot of time, 15 verses there, the blind man, a whole chapter 
is devoted to the blind man. And when you read that chapter in chapter 9 of John, you find out why it's there. All of the issues that were at play over the life of this character of this man who was born blind. John tells the whole detail. He wants us to know the whole story. He wants us to feel the heart of the whole issue. John's going to take us into those issues and make sure we go deep. You got that? Go deep. That's what he's interested in. The issues over Pilate take a lot of time. He doesn't run through that rather quickly. And of course, his issue with Peter, he deals with well, too. He offers deeper insights into what's going inside of people. That's something that John does. What does not John do? Well, he does not tell parables. Did you know that before? The other synoptics tells parables. John doesn't tell parables. Why would John not tell parables? He wants you to understand the story. He doesn't want to put it in some sort of a guise, you know, in some kind of a foil that you have to figure out how to unwrap it. He's going to tell you the direct story and all the details. He does tell us some allegories of the good shepherd and the true vine. He tells us those things, but those aren't parables. Those are allegories. Many important accounts in the synoptics are omitted. John doesn't feel the need to tell these very essential stories in his gospel. You remember the text that we read at the beginning? They were carefully selected stories that John picked out so that we might believe. He's got an agenda for us. He's carefully crafting his book. He leaves out, in doing that, the birth, the baptism, the temptations. They're not to be found there. What do you think the critics would make of that, Dean? (laughs) Oh, it can't be expired. didn't include those things. <laughs> My goodness. The Last Supper, Gethsemane, and the Ascension all left out. Also left out, quite interestingly, is the healings and possessions by evil spirits. Well, not all of the healings. Of course, he healed this uh, a blind man, other things. But the possession of evil spirit, that's gone. John is careful about being very precise in his details as well. He records exact information about things that would, you'd never be able to know about. The exact location of Jacob's well. The accurate knowledge of Jerusalem and its environs. He tells us and describes the colonnades at, Solomon's, uh, at uh, Bethesda and uh, Sol- uh, Solomon's colonnade nearby there. Uh, layout of the Pool of Bethesda. This was destroyed over f- 25 years before John actually wrote. You know, it's gone. And he writes this from memory. So John is a detailed person as well. He describes the exact number. Again, this issue, how many years transpired. By the way, when did John write his book? At the end of the first century. The events he describes, see if you could do this, go back 70 years, almost 70 years, 65 years. Could you remember details from that long? Well, John did. And he put it down for us. He tells us the exact number and the size and the weight <laughs> of those wedding pots, of those water pots at the wedding of Cana. He tells us the whole story of the soldiers gambling over Jesus' garments. But don't you think he was inspired? Oh, certainly. And, but, is, yeah. but so were the others, but they didn't tell us this kind of detail. But I think God really helped him. Yeah, yes, he, it, very much so, very much so. But John had an agenda. He had a reason, and God helped him to bring out exactly what he needed to in telling his story of Jesus. And by the way, wouldn't you want to hear John's story? The man who had his, his head right on the breast of Jesus, who was the closest to him. 
He's going to tell us things that are so precious. The other Gospels reveal a tactile Jesus. He would often touch people when healing them. Look at all of those verses. You know, touch, 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 touch. Well, in Jesus' miracles in John, they were acts of faith on the part of the recipient. And so there's not so much touching going on, a little bit, not much. Uh, He tells people to fill and to draw the water at Cana. They had something to do to make the miracle happen. The miracle took place when they acted. What did John say? He's writing so that we will believe. And we and acting is carrying out belief. That's what it's all about. The royal official, when he was told, as after hearing this, 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 this plea from the father for the son to make his son well, Jesus says, go. <laughs> he had to go. He had to participate, you know, by action. The paralytic must get up. Wasn't made well down there. He had to get up to get well. In the process, the healing happened. Lazarus couldn't stay in that tomb. He had to come out, bound as he was, wrapped up. He couldn't move, but he came out. What a story that would be to tell if you were Lazarus. I told you about those tombs, didn't I? This was not horizontal, it was vertical. You went down into the earth, you know. At least the tomb that they think is Lazarus' tomb. And there were staircases, circular staircases that went down and then off into the side is where his body was all wrapped up. So when Jesus says, Lazarus, come out, that whole thing, all wrapped up, had to stand up, go all the way around and come up and he had to wait for the door to be opened to get out. That's an interesting miracle, isn't it? But he had to participate in that thing himself. And so this is something about John that's interesting as well. John's audiences were different. Those not having firsthand experience. Um, he's writing to an audience at the end of the first century. That for, he's the last one that had witnessed it all personally firsthand. And what is John's concern? He wants to make sure that it, the next generation and generation after and generation after knows how to believe without the benefit of experiencing this stuff personally. And so he's going to very carefully tell his story with that in mind. And I think that's one of the reasons why John is very interested, interesting to us to read because of the way he does this. They hadn't seen but believed through the word. The power of Jesus' presence is replaced with active faith in his word. We don't have his presence physically, but we have it through faith, don't we? And so John is guiding the church from the visual to the spiritual. From what you can see to what you can't see, but you can see by faith. And that's his job. And um, you remember the mother of Jesus said, I don't know what he's going to say, but whatever he says, do it. That describes the church today. John tells that story. The royal son, 16 miles he had to go to see his son. 16 miles he had come to see Jesus. Now he had to go back and find out if what Jesus said was really true. Where do you think he carried that belief? Not through his visual memory. 
He carried it in his heart, just like we do. We presented some prayer requests here this morning, many of them, very important to us. We've learned to trust these things to Jesus, and we see what he can do. It's amazing, and that's what John is all about. He wants us, without the benefit of seeing, to believe through the testimony. The paralytic at Bethesda told to rise and walk and the blind man he had to go more than a kilometer away to complete his healing. And then he had to defend it among all of his enemies. And that made his belief mature and grow. And Lazarus, oh my goodness, in chapter 11, Jesus delayed even coming because of the benefit that that would do for Mary and Martha. He wanted to teach Mary and Martha and Jesus wants all of us since that first generation passed away to believe, even though the evidence seems to speak the other way. And how often has the evidence spoken the other way and by our belief, God turns it around? That story of the little child that Harold told. Isn't that an amazing story? I didn't know that was going to illustrate my sermon. Jesus is literally, according to the Gospel of John, God with us. He's literally that. And that's the message that John is so eager to present. Without the prologue, which is chapter 1, and you read what he says in chapter 1 of of the Gospel, it's one of the most amazing chapters. You can't find anything like it anywhere else. Uh, It's the prologue. Many of the statements that John makes afterward would seem ridiculous without this prologue that establishes the fact. And notice what he says here. In the beginning was the Word. Now, every Jew would agree with that, right? The Word has always been there. The Logos, it's always been there, right? God spoke, that's the Word, and it was so. And the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Every Jew would believe that. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him, nothing was made that was made was made that was made. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness did not comprehend it. Every Jew, amen, would say amen. And then he goes on, and he introduces something really special. And look what he says here. Talks about Jesus, verse 14. And the word became flesh. Whoa. Whoa. The word became flesh. And dwelt among us, and we beheld his glory, the glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. And he's establishing the fact that what was just talk is now right visually in front of us. You can see it and you can touch it. And John says, that's what we're going to be, and, and our life will be just like the life of Jesus. It is filled with the power of the word, And all that's there, all of the power of heaven is right in Jesus. He says, now to the church, you're going to be like that. And that's something that we don't know uh, is still being believed today. The Old Testament logos is not about teaching. It's about a person, Jesus. There's no room for Gnostics or Docetists in, 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 uh, in John's teachings. Gnostics just simply didn't believe that there could be such a thing as God, and Docetus thought, well, he just appeared to be that way. He wasn't really that way. We can be like him. Man is made in the what? 
Yes. And read, read Romans. Now, this isn't John, but go over to Romans. And I love this verse. It connects with what John is trying to say in Romans chapter 8. Uh, do you have it? First one has it. Just read it for us. 8, chapter 3 and following. Oh, I've got two pages together. It doesn't ever work very well. For what the law could not do in that it was weak through the flesh, God did by sending his own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh, and on account of sin he condemned sin in the flesh, that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who do not walk according to the flesh, but what? According to the Spirit. For those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh, but those who live according to the Spirit on the things of the Spirit. And so, you know, Paul is talking here and he's talking how important it is, you know, that, that we um, don't walk by the flesh, that we allow the Spirit, the Spirit that can make something like the Word become reality in the flesh of Jesus Christ in his whole life and likewise become a reality in our life. That's what John is trying to say. And then if you go over the first epistle of John chapter 3, verse 2, it says, Beloved, now are we the children of God and it does not yet it has not yet been revealed what we shall be, but we know that when he is revealed, we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. Now, do you believe that? Are you living the experience of that? Is what John would say. It's not something you just believe in your head. He wants us to experience that kind of a life. Become, Jesus became flesh, it was real, that we might also become like him. The word is life. The bread is living bread. The body is a resurrected body. There is a new way, a new truth, a new life. Life is now abundant. It's not something in the future. It's something that we enjoy now. And John was trying to leave that to this infant church that was struggling to survive to tell them, you can live as Jesus lived. In all of the power, in all of the reality, Jesus was able to know the right words to say at all times. He was able to see right through the complications and take us right to the solutions in a miracle. And that's what Jesus has given the church. To live according to the Spirit, unleashing all the power of heaven into mankind. We are in His image. We will be in His image again. And as we accept Jesus Christ as our Savior, amen, we have that power. And that's what John is very eager to communicate. John places great value on the Spirit. To Nicodemus, he says, except a man be born of water and of the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of heaven. To the woman at the well, the hour cometh and now is when the true worshiper shall worship the Father in spirit and truth. For the Father seeketh such to worship him. God is a spirit, and they that worship him must worship him in spirit and truth. Are you hearing what I'm saying here? And what it's saying? John is saying, we experienced something so phenomenal it took us a while to finally understand what it was. God was in Christ, saving the world. God is in you, the church, saving the world. The same power that Jesus had from the Father, he is given to whom? His church. And therefore, John is trying to communicate that. He has such a burden that that message not be lost as he falls upon, uh, goes to his rest and falls off the scene. When his disciples doubted, he said in chapter 6, 
It is the spirit that quickeneth, the flesh profiteth nothing. The words that I speak unto you, they are spirit and they are life. If you are not living this way, you're not yet experiencing Christ in you, the hope of glory. You hear what I'm saying? This is what John is trying to say to the church. The Holy Spirit is the key to our success. It facilitates all of Jesus' wishes for us, making them come true. To his disciples, I will pray the Father, and he shall give you another comforter, that he may be able, that he may abide in you forever, the Spirit of truth, which the world cannot receive, because it seeth him not, neither knoweth him, but you know him, for he dwelleth with you, and shall be in you. I will leave you, not leave you comfortless, I will come to you. And John wants us to know that Jesus will do that. We can be as close to God as Jesus was. It is not about us. It's about God and what he does in our lives. You know, it's taken me a long, long time. Next month. No, March. 66 years of age. Takes a long time to learn some lessons in life. Do you find it that way? Or is it just some people that are slow? I always thought it was me. And now I'm beginning to learn I don't have to prep for stuff. I have the Spirit. And instantaneously, you know how this works, the right words come to your mouth. Why? Because I've learned to relax and let the Spirit get in. And it just is there. And it's so obvious the right thing that I need to do, the right thing I need to say, and the right way to feel. What a gift God has given us in the Holy Spirit. And John says he doesn't want that to be lost to the upcoming church. Victory is not from uh, without, but it's from within through Jesus Christ. Now, the church in Jesus' day didn't understand that. Uh, They were very much into themselves. You remember, in the three Gospels, the focus was the kingdom of God. That's the theme all the way through those first three, uh, Matthew, Mark, and Luke. The kingdom of God is near. Behold, the kingdom of God has arrived. In John's day, Zionism was already dying. Everybody had put their whole hope in the kingdom. You remember in the Northern California Conference, I told you the last time I preached about their goals. For a long, long time, they had the banners hung up at Leone Meadows saying, nothing matters but the kingdom. That's like the synoptic gospels. <laughs> um, they've changed that now to make it much better. In John's day... 65 years after the destruction of their temple in A.D. Uh, 70, the Jews were displaced throughout the Middle East. A new Zionist movement headed by the Bar Kokhba rebellion attempted to rebuild the temple and restore Palestine to the Jews. This is all part of Zionism. They always were fixed on the idea we've got to make a church. And a church is a physical locality. It's a building. It has structure. It has organization. All of those things. Were any of the apostles concerned about that? Not one. Is the Seventh-day Adventist concerned about that? Sometimes. Sometimes. Uh, we're, we're learning, though, and I think we're growing quite fast on this changing. Rome crushed uh, the rebellion, forever making Jerusalem off-limits to Jews, except for the annual anniversary of what? Not the temple's dedication. The temple's destruction. In your face, Romans. Between A.D. 70 and 135, almost two and a half million Jews were slaughtered, starved to death, or sold as slaves. 
That's what the danger is when you look at Zionism. And the Jews insisted on living that out. Therefore, only, thereafter, only occasionally did they venture back to their homeland over a long, long period of time. There were tremendous persecutions. Uh, uh, between AD 30 and 311, about a dozen emperors decided that Christians need to be persecuted. I'll go through this rather quickly. You remember the persecutions of Nero? Yeah. If you have the focus on Zionism or something physical, this is going to throw you absolutely crazy. You're going to say, how can this possibly be? But if the focus is on you and your heart, this doesn't have any effect at all. At all. He martyred Peter and Paul and a bunch of others. Domitian was one who also did persecutions just around, and he's the one that was involved with uh, uh, John. And then um, Trajan in 117 and 112 to 117, Christianity was outlawed, but they didn't do much to punish Christians. Marcus Aurelius, a soldier, he knew how to take care of troublemakers. He killed Polycarp. You know who Polycarp was? He's the one that succeeded John as the bishop of Ephesus. He was trained by John. He was killed by Marcus Aurelius. In 202 to 210, Septimus Severus killed one of the most outstanding women of the church of all times, Perpetua. Beautiful lady. What a testimony. You know, when these people died, it was such a godly thing that it turned the hearts of people towards the Lord. It was amazing. Decius, Christians were told that they must sacrifice, make sacrifices to God, and those that didn't were persecuted. And uh, so that was a tough time. And then you have these three that were at that time, and then finally Diocletian in 303 to 324, and also Galerius, there were severe persecutions. And so you see... Following this time, this time that John lived and the early church was being established, there were horrible times of persecution. How important was it then to have an interior faith to get through that? And John wanted very much. These people might be called to sacrifice their life for Christ. You don't do that very well unless you've got something inside your heart. Isn't that right? And that's what John wanted very much to do. The church lives even when it's dying. Justin Martyr wrote these words. He was early Christian. Though beheaded, crucified, thrown to wild beasts and chains and fire and all kinds of torture, we do not give up our confession. But the more such things happen, the more do others in larger numbers become faithful. They saw it happening. Will this happen again in the last days? Yep, it will. We're told that. And so the stories of this days are definitely applicable to us. We need the message of John, who saw this, told us to have a live interior faith that was vibrant, the spirit very alive as it was in Jesus. In the face of persecutions, many Christians chose to die before they would deny their Lord. They were called martyrs, which simply means what? A witness. The second century theologian uh, Tertullian wrote amazing, he's a lawyer, converted to Christianity, uh, he wrote that uh, the blood of martyrs is the seed of the church. Became a very famous thing. It's the seed. Where else can you find people who have such vibrant and strong faith that in the presence of their lives being sacrificed? And the best came out of these people and it turned a world towards Christ. Jesus, of course, was sad to see their lives taken away 
but very happy with the good that came out of their lives at that time. Well, Zionism persists on. Uh, a Hungarian Jew in 1895, Theodor Herzl, at um, 1895, 35 years old, he resurrected the modern Zionist movement. And there was a sentiment over a false conviction of Alfred Dreyfus, condemned to life imprisonment. He was a Jew. And immediately, this man, Theodor Herzl, sensed a loss of identity and homeland. He dropped into, into seclusion. He wrote a book called The Jewish State. I'm translating it from German which gave rise to a political movement for the Jews retaking Jerusalem. And so from his day until around the end of the 1800s, early part of 1900s, the whole energy of the Jewish nation was to go back and capture that landscape and rebuild, and that's what they've been consumed in doing. Zionism. Just the opposite of what John was telling the church they needed to do. Just the opposite. Are they any better off today? Well, you can argue pros and cons on that. But that place is a powder cake today. In 1897, he proclaimed, in 50 years, listen to this, 1897, 50 years a Jewish state would become a reality. You see the date when the UN voted it into existence? 50 years later. Today, 42% of Jews now live in Israel. You can hardly find them before. It's a false hope. By the time of John's writing, the present and future fate of Zionism was fixed. God's church is not Zionistic. Look at Romans chapter 2, what we can find there. Do you still have your Bibles open? Do you have your glasses on? This is really tiny print. 28 and 29 of chapter 2. For he is not a Jew who is one outwardly, nor is that circumcision which is outward in the flesh. But he is a Jew who is one where? Circumcision that is of the what? And the what? Not in the letter whose praise is not from men, but from God. God alone, through his spirit, makes Christians. And Christians don't need some kind of a temple. They don't even need what we have here to be alive and to thrive. Our hope is in heaven. It's not here. There's some important texts, but I'm going to move on. John set the foundation for a new type of church, not centered on a temple or ceremonies or regulations, but simply on the word and on faith. Would such a church exist? Would such a church thrive? The apostles understood this. What they were doing completely outpaced what? Any control of man, the abilities of man, and the thoughts of men. The Holy Spirit was in charge, making things happen that who else could see was going to happen. Well, this is an interesting chart. Does it look like something got on there and really messed up that page? I spent some time working on this, <laughs> so I hope you appreciate it. <laughs> what happened to those disciples after Jesus? He sent them out without benefit of, of an organization, he sent them out without benefit of basically even a purse. He said it would be provided, right? He sent them out with soldiers to escort. What? No, none of that. He sent them out without an organization. All of that kind of stuff. He sent them out with his spirit. Was it sufficient? Yeah. Well, look how far they went. Thomas, doubting Thomas, India. Yeah, throughout India here. That's Thomas. Paul, of course, went 
uh, into uh, the uh, eastern parts of, or outside of Palestine and through Palestine. And then he also went uh, up to uh, England. That's England there. He also, you know, over in uh, the, the missionary journeys throughout here. He went through here. I, I put this on here so you can see this small group of without organization, without structure, without buildings or anything like that. What did they do? Philip. Philip went over here to Tunisia and over here to Asia Minor. Uh, Matthew, Matthew was amazing. He became scholar in residence, you know, in the Middle East over here. And also he went down to Ethiopia. Uh, John. John, the apostle, uh, was spent some time here in Jerusalem, but then he also went over here to Asia Minor and spent some time around Ephesus and got around. James the Less, um, he came down to, uh, I have him going down to, um, to Rome, and the other James the Greater, he came down here and worked in this area around, uh, I can hardly see here, I'm so close to it, uh, the Middle East, and he also uh, worked in um, up here. Well, actually, in Spain. Anyway, so, uh, and he also went down to Italy as well. But you can see Peter went various places. Andrew, look at Andrew, went down here and went over here, went up to Russia, and um, uh, uh, Judas, uh, Thaddeus, worked in this area here. They went everywhere, all around uh, Bartholomew, you know. D- did the Middle East get covered by these people? Amen. Was God smart in doing it this way? Amen. How else would he have launched the church? It seems like an impossible task. Look what happened. So maybe there's going to be a time ahead when we're going to learn, leave all of this structure and leave all of this organization And we're going to go out with nothing but the Holy Spirit in our hearts and conquer the world. Kind of like they did. What amazing. That's what John knew was going to happen. And he wanted to, in his gospel, that that message happen. Just like Abraham did when God met him and said, there's nothing now, but look what I'm going to give you. Like the stars of the sky. Just like what he did on top of that mountain when he opened his eyes and helped him to see what it was really all about. Changed his heart. And then Abraham became an amazing guy. And he was able to pass it on, at least to some of his kids, you know. And then you have uh, Jacob with his dream of angels coming up and down at Bethel. And then you have him struggling with God. It's something of the heart until he finally found out and he became, Jacob became whom? Prince of God. That's all he needed was God. That's all any of us ever need. David, what did he need? He can get by with anything if he had God. A little tiny stone had stymied the entire armies of Saul. But a man with God in his heart could use anything to go where he needs to be. And John was trying to prepare us. And when his servant came in and said, oh, these armies are all around us, you know, what did Elisha do? Prayed, opened up the eyes of his servant, and he sees where God is at. That's what God is all about. And that's what John is trying. He went through the teachings of Jesus and pulls the stuff out so that we would be believers. And oh, we need that. Martin Luther, (laughs) look what he did. 
William Tyndall, giving us the English Bible at great cost to himself. And that's a little tiny picture in the corner. It's a picture of Ellen White speaking at Loma Linda. And she said, do it. Do it. You know? They didn't have anything to do it with. Said, do it. And now the whole world knows about Loma Linda University and Seventh-day Adventists because the Spirit was in her heart. That's the way God church lives. Not by might, nor by power, but by His Spirit, saith the Lord of hosts. That's pretty powerful, isn't it? So this is the whole passage of what, this is what the gospel is about. It's trying to take us from our lock onto the physical. It's trying to take us on the things that are sure and take us to something far more valuable than that. And we're going to study that chapter by chapter all through the year together. Hopefully open up our hearts. So here's your assignments. I want you to start reading John. You've all got a Bible. Just start reading it. Don't try to race through it. Take your time. Think about it. If you don't understand it, set it aside, pray about it, walk around, do something, and what happens? The Holy Spirit talks to you. And all of a sudden, you see things you couldn't see before. Start reading the Gospel of John. Slowly, a few verses at a time. Make this our journey together as we try to understand what the burden was of this man who put his head right on the heart of Jesus. The last one surviving and had so much of a passion to make sure the church wouldn't die, but it would live on. Prayerfully, read it prayerfully all through this year. Now, I can only study it with you when I'm here, so, you know, we kind of get it in a hiccup way. Wait on the Lord prayerfully, as God will open. He will. He will give you such amazing insights because he wants us to know this. What is he really saying from his day to our day? What is the message for us John wrote it with that in mind so that we would believe, we would become believers. Believers in what? A God who is not limited in any way. The Word became flesh. The people that were made in God's image now could be the temple of the Holy Spirit. And they could do the things that Jesus did. How amazing. That's us. He's talking about us. What does it mean to me? It will be relevant to you. Uh, How does that work? We have a whole year to spend with John. So I hope it will be a blessed event. Let's enjoy it.